G'day there, and welcome back to the Convergently Speaking podcast. Today on the show, we have a really exciting guest for you. We've got a local friend and colleague from Minnesota who, interestingly, is actually called Adelaide. So, Addie or Adelaide, same name as the the town I'm originally from in Australia. I'll let her give a bigger introduction to what she does, but we know each other through being colleagues as local therapists. She works primarily with singles, whereas I work mostly with couples, and she works a lot in the area of trauma. But we'll get we'll get more into that. Yeah, hi, this is Caitlin as well, and it's been really fun getting to know Addie over the last few months that we've been here, and we've had a lot of good chats and sharing around trauma and around families, so it's really great to have her on. So welcome, Addie, and thanks for making the, the trek out here to come be an in-person guest on the show. Yeah, let's. I'd just love to start at the beginning and hear a little bit about what you do and, and how you got into doing what you do. Sure. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's. It, I agree. It's been fun getting to know you guys and see all the fun connections that we have. So, yeah, my name is Addie Miklich. I founded Illuminate Counseling in early 2022, and it's located in Roseville. It's a solo practice. I work with adults focusing on trauma and addiction. And I wanted to be a therapist when I was a teenager after my first stint of therapy. And I looked around and thought, this is maybe the greatest work in the world. And also, I just have friends who would tell me, you're the only person I told this to, and here it is. So it just feel, it felt like a natural ability as well as something that was a really interesting line of work where you can connect with people on, on really deep levels. And then in that, I discovered how much of my own history informed my curiosity around the subjects that I work with with clients. And so did your interest continue right from that moment or how, how did that sort of play out? Yeah, pretty much. I started therapy at 15 and then decided to go to college at 16. I did an accelerated program and thankfully, I think it took a number of years once I graduated to get my license, but because I graduated at 22 with my master's. So I felt like I wasn't quite ready in the worldly sense, but yeah, the interest just grew and grew the more I learned. And so I wasn't always a trauma therapist, but I found that I can connect with people and we can have great chats and, and hopefully get to some deeper levels. But in that, I realized like I wanted more trauma-informed background so that I could actually help heal those traumas rather than just provide symptom relief. And now I'm in this interesting place of looking at the benefits, benefits of both. So those that don't that are listening along that might not have a background in in counseling or therapy could you tell us a little bit about what trauma informed means what that what that term means sure yeah one way sometimes people have a hard time with the word trauma so you could also say stress or accumulated stress it's tension in the body and one way i like to view it is that trauma is stored in the body and not in the event of whatever happened and so 
a trauma-informed therapy approach will include the body and notice that your feelings or your musculature or different, you know, ways that you carry your body hold the trauma. And so if you're feeling stuck, that stuckness could show up in the body and that could be one way to work at it or work with it rather than simply talking about it. And so I think a, there's a there's a benefit of being able to help people alleviate some of the worst symptoms, but in order to work on it not reoccurring, you need to figure out what's underneath it and heal those wounds, which are often early wounds. And being early wounds, I suppose that means that they're they're precognitive often and sometimes even pre pre a person learning language, yeah. That can be the case, yeah. So pre-verbal trauma doesn't have a story attached to it if it's at a really young age, and yet it doesn't mean that it doesn't still impact your responses or your reactions. And so I like to think of it like something in the present will trigger something in the past. And so if you've ever noticed that you have a large reaction to something and you kind of can step back after the fact and almost have surprise about how large you responded, I like to think that we're trying to respond both to the past and the present at the same time. And so what's kind of cool in that is that if you can successfully negotiate something in the present, sometimes without your conscious awareness, you're healing stuff from the past. But often what I see in my work is that it just keeps getting triggered. So I'm having these huge reactions that might show up with your partner, might show up in certain circumstances, and I don't like it and I don't know how to get out of this pattern. And so it's going to the body can often be a way to to work with that. And I'd, it might sound more woo-woo than I'm intending when I say go to the body. It's being able to pay attention, you know, when you have a certain type of conflict, where do you feel it in your body? And what's it like? Is it a tightness? Is it a stabbing pain? Is it a, you know, does it make you shut down? And so then when we can play with those responses and have a new outcome, even in a therapy setting, you can begin to have a new outcome outside of the therapy setting as well. I was just listening to an interview with David Bricelli, who's the creator of TRE, which is the modality that I've been studying. And he was even talking about how the fact that even in just a talk session, if people end up crying, that's really what it that is, is a physical, a physical manifestation of maybe your diaphragm needing to needing to be released and that kind of thing. So that's one standard response most people are familiar with. And then you kind of just go even deeper into that. Sure. Yeah, yeah you can. Uh, another version of that. So crying could be a form of discharge. Laughter can also be a form of discharge. Shaking can. I can say a little bit more about that if that would be helpful. If you think about animals in the wild. So I'm I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner and I studied the work of Peter Levine and he observed animals in the wild and realized they often face life-threatening situations but don't often express trauma symptoms like humans do. And so he was curious about why that was. And so we say fight or flight, but it's likely flight or fight. We run if we can, we fight if we have to, and if not, we freeze. And either way, if you freeze, that means that fight or flight energy gets stored in the body and animals will come out of the freeze when they know that the threat is gone and they'll shake and tremble. And it's if you think of like an ACDC current, expansion, contraction, that is an efficient way to release that energy. 
And humans either don't know that they need to shake and tremble or they try to stop the shaking or they go on right to the next thing or there's shame associated with it. There's a lot of reasons why we don't allow that process to happen. But if we did, we might not have the same trauma symptoms that often show up with PTSD. So there's a lot of ways to discharge it. And I know sometimes people get humor gets a bad rap, but I'm all for humor. You know, whatever we can use to help you cope, if it's slightly different than the pattern, then let's go for that. Sometimes people have a habit of coming into therapy, crying, and then leaving, and that's it. And so that might be a stuck pattern as well. And it could be useful to kind of rein it in and see what else might be there. Maybe it's anger underneath the sadness that that's the fight response that needed to complete itself that wasn't able to. Yeah, so it's it's really looking at like, where do you feel stuck? Where do you feel kind of less able to have the responses that you want to? And that's what we can work on. Mm, Yeah. And yeah, part of what you said there is giving giving the body the nervous system your conscious mind like a different alternative too huh like it's just Mm -hmm. changing the pattern just enough that you're because when you're in that pattern you kind of stuck and don't realize there's alternative sure yeah Addie, i wanted to hone in on something you said a few moments ago i'm not sure if i learned this or if i just intuitively worked it out but I was only saying to someone the other day that the way in which I actually work with couples compared to the way in which I imagined and my philosophical ideas that I thought I would have are actually really different. Years ago, when I dreamed about becoming a counsellor, I imagined these long, in-depth, winding, I'd see people for long periods of time and The reality is that when I work with people and I'm mostly with couples, I'm actually quite quick and quite direct and to the point. And at times I've been tempted to think, am I operating in a superficial way? Am I operating with a lack of depth? And I've come to realize that there's two ways at this. And this this is where my question comes in that sometimes I will work with a couple and I will help them develop new tools and strategies and skills to use in the here and now and this will retroactively help heal the trauma so they'll have a good healthy interaction with their partner and without necessarily intending to they will heal and fix and change wounds from decades earlier and then of course I get the opposite where I have couples where one or both parties have so much historical trauma that I need to refer them on. And so really coming at the same thing from two two options, I think most people listening would realize that if you have a trauma, you can go and directly deal with, with that event. But I'm interested to hear more from you about what you said earlier about, can't remember how you worded it, but essentially working working in the here and now and how that will actually kind of... Re- heal retroactive experiences without doing that directly? Sure. That's a good question. I've got about seven ways I could answer it, so I might try to answer a couple of them. Yeah, go for it. There's no hurry. One of the things I think that we do as humans, I, I believe, is that we invite the things that we resist. And I think we do it in order to have a new response to it. 
So ironically, if we resist sadness, I think it's out of not wanting to feel it forever. And the irony is if we do that, we end up feeling it forever. And if we resist fear, I think we don't want to get stuck. And in resisting it, we get stay stuck. And I think we resist anger out of not wanting to hurt ourselves or others. And that resistance, as, as you're following along, creates more harm to self and others. And so I believe unintentionally we'll, we'll try to create situations from our past to have a new response to it, which you'll see in couples all the time. Absolutely. Right? And I believe that we pick people who have similar wounding to us, and that's what makes them attractive in some regard. And so it's a chance that if both people are on the same page and and willing to do the work together can move through it beautifully together. And then it also can go totally awry, as I'm sure you witness Absolutely. more. Yeah, yeah. I feel like in, in some ways I do couples therapy just with the individual, right? Trauma happens in relationship and healing happens in relationship. So I can talk about these modalities, but it's really the relationship that you have with your therapist that creates a new healing interaction, a new healing response. And so you need to be present and there with with someone and being willing to be touched by them as well. And so I think that's what makes this work hard, but also lovely. That's really interesting. And I agree with what you say. I think that most therapists are actually doing some degree of couples work because, I mean, what causes trauma? It's usually something to do with a relationship. Not Not always, of course. You can have a car crash and experience trauma and there doesn't have to be anyone else involved but but often there is and this is really why I created a service that I call individual relationship therapy because I realized that so many people were drawn to therapy to deal with issues that were relational but they weren't necessarily coming with with their partner Eddie I'm wondering if you've got an example either a real example or, or the or the type of scenario that you would experience when working with an individual in this way. And as you said, you know, there's an element to which the relationship with you as a therapist is healing um, that you could share that, that sort of exemplifies in, in a practical way how this, this idea actually works out. Sure. So one of the dynamics that I talk a lot about in my sessions is codependency, which is, I guess, a shorthand in when I use it of boundary struggles. And so, as you were mentioning, there's a couple different ways to approach an issue. And one could be, I could give the assignment of go set a boundary with five people in your life and come back and tell me how it went. And so that's like, you're going to do it now and we're going to see if it heals stuff retroactively. The other approach is, to, you know, I could do, I'm also trained in brain spotting, and which is a similar modality to somatic experiencing, where we could look at where possibly some of the original boundary ruptures occurred and then heal that. And often in that, people will be able to just naturally feel more capable to set boundaries. And so one way that I've noticed that boundary ruptures harm people when they're very young is that when we're young, we are reliant on our caregivers. And if they are not meeting our needs, we get louder and louder in order to get them met. And depending on how the caregiver responds, we could have a shame response. And shame is a strong internal reaction that tells us to shut down our wants and needs. And so 
often in this work, I will try to help people identify what is it that you want, even by asking in each session, what would you, what do you want to get out of this time together? And based on people's responses, you can have a clear idea as to whether or not they can, one, identify whether what they want, and then two, express that. And, and one way that that gets avoided is just a long story about what's happened or how they want other people to change. And so it's very vulnerable to have your want because if you have that as a young child and it doesn't get met, that can be incredibly painful. Or you can rupture, the thought is you can rupture your relationship with the caregiver and then you would be, you know, a goner basically. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I remember years ago I was seeing a physical therapist in Australia who had this strange but really cool evolution into becoming an actual therapist. And and I saw him through this period and we were working on the area of boundaries for myself. And I remember distinctly sitting there and sharing with him that, well, look, I mean, I set boundaries. Like I don't want to get burnt out again. I need to set boundaries at work and I do that. That's not an issue. But the issue that I'm having is that when I set the boundaries, I'm still feeling anxious. Hmm. And this moment, he, he said to me, in a way it's simple, but it was so profound, he said that essentially my, my adult self knew that, that I needed to set that boundary and I was doing it, but there was a younger Daniel living in me that had this fear that if I set boundaries with people, I'd be rejected. And that for me was the moment that I now look back on where I first understood the concept of inner parenting or having a a younger version of ourselves inside of us. So it sounds like that's, that's partly as well what you're, what you're touching on. I've heard it described as the cosmic irony is for those of us who have been abandoned or who fear abandonment, we've already been abandoned. And the reality is when you set a boundary, there is a risk of rejection. And so if you have to be a false self in order to have a relationship with somebody, what kind of relationship is that? Now, it's easy for me to just say that as a concept, but if you're married to this person and your financial status is tied to them and your whole social circle is tied to them, you know, it's that's a risk and that's a real risk. I'll do like a a boundary exercise with people, especially if they have really hard time setting boundaries, and I'll say, no matter what I ask, I want you to say no to me. And then I'll ask goofy things. Can you hand me that pillow? Can you slide to the left? And people get incredibly uncomfortable, even though they know that this is an exercise. And so that's an idea of, okay, we're playing with the here and now. I'm not talking about a boundary struggle. We're experiencing a struggle with setting boundaries. And then whatever discomfort comes up, we can follow that trail. Where do you notice in in your body? What else do you notice it as you're paying attention to it? And sometimes as we're noticing that, it'll lead to other feelings or it'll lead to different sensations in the body or it'll lead to a memory or a thought. And then when that shows up, we just continue to follow that trail. And I think what we do is, okay, you have an anxiety around, or at that time had an anxiety around rejection, and then that becomes overwhelming. And so we like that's like a period. And now I'm just anxious. And that's the invitation to continue to pursue that to heal whatever's happened in the past so that the real you can show up. 
Because when you're expressing your wants and needs, that's actually a very vulnerable place to be. But when you're around people who will honor that, even if it means like I ask you to go somewhere and you say no to me, I can still have my own feelings about that, but then I can honor your boundary. Then you get to be you in the relationship. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. And and for my specific example, just that knowledge was transformational. And I certainly don't work on the assumption that knowledge is as a rule transformational, but it but it can it can occur. I'm wondering if I can step out on a limb and just go a little bit of a different direction, going back to something you said earlier, and say as little or as you or as much as you want. But as you know, one of my areas, one of my and Caitlin's areas really is personality typology. And I know last time we were hanging out, we were talking about our personality types, my personality type in Myers-Briggs being INFJ. And I'm pretty sure you said, Addy, that you thought you were ENFJ. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And I know that this isn't your area and you don't know stacks about this. And so I'm not going to, you know put you on the spot with that but just just an a thought and a reflection on this that and caitlin's isfj and for all three of those personality types one part of our personality type is is what we call extroverted feeling or personality hacker who i trained with call it harmony listeners would be you know familiar with this kind of a concept and harmony or extroverted feeling, what it's really good at is knowing what other people are feeling. And what it's not very good at is, well, really what it doesn't do is know what, what the individual who has that in their personality is feeling. And so this is the, the, the cognitive function. I won't give you a whole primer on Myers-Briggs stuff right now, but but it's it's one of the eight cognitive functions and it's the cognitive function that struggles the most with setting boundaries and being assertive and so we've talked in the past on this podcast and and you know i often share with my clients who who we determine have extroverted feeling in their personality that this this is the function that struggles with boundaries this is the function that tends to get into codependent relationships this is the function that what you were saying before, Addy, not, not exclusively, but that, that will opt for a false persona to connect. So agreeing to things maybe you don't want to agree to because you, because you don't want to lose that relationship or you don't want to be rejected. So I'm just, my, my question is, uh, and again, say as much as you want or as little as you want, but what role has who you are contributed to your specific direction. I know you've trained with Pia Melody, who's her whole thing is around codependency. And 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 do you relate to my very quick and dirty assessment of having a part of you that's inclined inclined towards that? And you can say you don't relate. I know Caitlin and I relate having this in our personality. It's something we've we've often reflected on. But yeah, I just love your your thoughts in, in real time. Yeah, it's funny when I share my typology or the Enneagram with people who know much more about it than me, which is most people who have any knowledge of it. And they're like, oh, and then I kind of look back and wonder how much I revealed about myself. 
It's Especially so... with the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> I've often, I, I maybe not always is the case, but the one way that I view it is for individuals who grew up in whatever kind of tough situation, a hypervigilance is often a skill that, that gets picked up. And so I can't help it but feel the feelings of other people a lot of the time. And I think one way to describe boundary work is with the term differentiation, and that's knowing what's me and what's not me. And if I can feel other people's feelings, that gets even more complicated. And so when you were talking about setting the boundary but feeling anxious, I had a client explicitly ask me, okay, I've been setting these boundaries, and how do I not feel bad about it? And I mean, we could try to desensitize ourselves to it like you just do it enough times and you find the right people who can honor your boundaries until it doesn't get anxious anymore but I've also worked with people who've had the struggle of feeling uncomfortable about whatever and that's a that's a bodily thing we know we're uncomfortable based on what our bodies are telling us and so being able to go into that is a useful skill and I also know that people with a lot of trauma have a hard, can have a hard time going into their bodies and allowing that to happen, a process to unfold, because it really can be overwhelming. And it's, it's up to the therapist to know what's too far, what's not enough, and, and to mess it up probably some of the time and until you get better at doing it. I've worked with people who've been upset that they're uncomfortable about a certain situation and that that discomfort may be pointing them to a boundary. And actually, I've worked with a lot of people who spend a lot of time trying to talk themselves out of that sensation, right? And I think an interesting, I haven't heard this in any trainings, but an interesting anecdotal piece of wisdom I think I'd gather is that a lot of trauma, when you get to the heart of the issue, it's that people question their own judgment. Mm. And so when we get used to the pattern of denying our own feelings, which was really useful when you're really young and don't have any other options, but when we continue to do that when it's no longer useful, you're creating the situation where you won't be able to trust your own judgment because you have a feeling and then you don't know if it's real. And so I think in setting boundaries, and so this is how you can do it relationally, because you need another person to set a boundary with, in setting boundaries, you test out, where do I actually land on this? And you're free to respond to however you want, you know, to my boundary, and then how do I respond to that? So it's just, it's an ongoing process, because I've, I've often used the pendulum analogy of, you know, people who come into my office and say, I don't have any boundaries. And I try to get them to see that's not exactly true. You know, if if you were in an empty room and someone came and stood immediately next to you, how would you feel? Okay, there's your boundary. But if you were in a giant empty room and someone was way across the room, how far would they need to be? So that you've got a some sort of gauge as to your, where your boundaries are, right? But they'll they'll come on one extreme and say, I don't have any boundaries. And then in they, as they practice, they'll begin setting walls. And then they realize how that feels, you know, oh, I'm pretty lonely in this experience. Maybe I should loosen these walls or no, this is the safety that I need right now. And I'm going to continue with the walls. And so it's it's checking in with yourself. It's checking in with who you're setting a boundary with and how they're responding. And it I really think it's about your relationship with yourself. 
I think a lot of what we do with other people is trying to figure out ourselves. Yeah, I I can relate to so much of what you're saying. I've definitely had that where at times in my life and still in some areas I feel completely unaware of what I need or want. And it's like the safety of even discovering, like doesn't feel safe to even really discover that because then I may need to set a boundary and I don't really want to. But yeah, and I've experienced that pendulum too, where I've gotten a little bit better at it. And then you kind of like, I've almost walled myself off. And I think I've also, on some level, I'm aware of the amount of needs and wants that I'm not in touch with and not expressing. And it, in some ways, it's felt like if I if I set a boundary, it's hard to do that in an assertive way. I feel like the only way, and maybe it's the only way that was modeled to me, is to do that out of anger. And it also feels like, well, if I open up the fact that I'm not getting what I need and want in all these ways, all that will come out is anger. And that's been hard to, yeah, hard to navigate and kind of has kept me in from, at times from setting a boundary because it's like I'm more comfortable just dealing with it on my own rather than setting the boundary, potentially getting angry, creating conflict, all of that. So yeah, I think that's how I'm personally relating to you. And I would imagine probably see that with clients too, huh? Yeah, I think that's the fear. So I've got a couple thoughts on that. I'm going to try to keep in track in my mind. Okay, so anger is the biggest response we have when we don't get what we want, which you can see in little kids Mm -hmm. most clearly. (laughs) But it's also a response to not fair. Mm. And so our options are to make fair by setting a boundary and or to forgive. I most of the time get this like groan when I give that option, those options. But emotion is energy plus motion. And so it it gives us the energy to act. And I think one of the issues is that when we get angry, we think we have to get angry at. Mm. And if you can go express your anger, allow it to be felt, you don't have to express it at someone. Because if you do express it at someone, that can be abuse. Mm. And so go express it with a safe person. Go express it with someone else. Go express it by yourself. Write it out. You know, figure out what the anger might be tied to. And then often through that, our boundaries get clarified. So there are times I have to draft up an angry text message and I don't even do it on the text app because sometimes my thumb has like accidentally set it like sent it just through habit you know so I'll do it on notepad and then I wait and I give it an hour I give it a day and I go back to it and it was very clear I just needed to express that and now I definitely don't want to send that (laughs) yeah well one of the one of the turning points for me actually where I stood up for myself was at work years ago 10 years ago and there was this lady who was it was at a group home and she she kind of had ruled the roost for quite a while but I was technically like one step higher than her I was helping manage the whole house and there was one day when I did something she didn't like and I you know I knew there were little little rumblings of her not liking how I did things here and there and she actually like yelled at me in front of the the residents of the house and it was really in the moment I just didn't really do much, but I was able to exactly what you said, write everything out. And I actually, it was interesting because I wrote it all out in my emotion, what I wanted to say to her. 
I waited a day and actually I was actually happy to send her. I ended up just leaving the note in her little pigeonhole thing because I was like, actually, that feels accurate and not overblown. And it she never mentioned it. Totally changed her reaction to me. And we actually got really got along really well after that. She kind of she clearly seemed to respect that I'd push back. And then I had taken that step and it actually really helped. But yeah, that was that was a big turning point for me. It was like, oh, I can do this. I can yes. be assertive. Yes. Yeah. I, I see that often with addiction. Loved ones will, I'll have them draft a letter of their boundaries or what they want to say to them. And then they'll feel really guilty about it. You know, that was so harsh or so intense. And then after the fact, once there's been some healing or some time, they'll say, all I did was speak the truth. It wasn't harsh. So that's a very common thing. Mm. Uh, what I've noticed in stuff that I don't want to send is that the want that I'm expressing is not something they can give me. You know, like, I want you to go back and change the past. Or I want you to not have the personality that you do. <laughs> or I want you to not trigger me because I just actually don't want to set a boundary. <laughs> right? And so... It's in clarifying for myself, what is it that I actually want for that, like from this person, from this situation, which is vulnerable to even ask yourself. But along the lines of Pia Melody, she has the the language functional adult. And so we all have, I mean, I don't like the idea of parts, but I think it can be useful. I don't like the disintegrating of that, but it's our functional adult part that can even ask ourselves, what do we want? What do I want from this? And then can actually find a way to get our own needs met, which might be in relationship or it might be in other ways as well. Well, from my perspective, you know, I could talk to you about this stuff all day long. We're probably getting nearer the the last section of the of the podcast and maybe we'll have you back down the track. But for today, is there any other thought or idea or, or something that you would like to share? Or, yeah, basically any other points that you're hoping to make? I think when I, maybe instead of going the clinical route, I might go the more personal route. And the more I do this work, I think the less I separate those two. I would say often in relationship struggles, I've found that usually, not usually, but one a common outcome is that in, couples might be feeling the same thing, but it's just showing up differently. And so... If you can hold in mind, okay, whatever I'm feeling in relationship with this person, that might be the exact same thing that they're feeling. And so I actually did that in a relational rupture not too long ago, and I was feeling confused and angry, and I didn't know what to do with it. And I realized in that, oh, I'm resisting my own feelings of confusion and anger. And so if I allow myself to feel them, it was a minute of feeling them and I had a very clear response of how I wanted to support them and and then just sent the text message off I wasn't stuck in it anymore and so it was holding that and then I think another just key piece is if I can stop personalizing everything that happens then I can be more objective in it right and so most of the time it's probably not about me if someone makes it about me, I assume it's also about their past, yeah. right? And so if I can take myself a little bit more lightly, I can show up a lot better. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it can be about you and about their past. Yeah. And this is what I find with client with couples, sorry. I I'm trying to get the ratio. Mm. And and you said it earlier, it's like when there's that out of proportion emotional reaction, then you know that the ra- ratio of about the other person versus themselves is it's more about themselves and their past and so on and so forth. And this is a really tricky thing I find with working with couples or, or individuals in terms of their relationships is to help the person that's quote unquote triggering the partner to be like, yeah, that's that's not great what you're doing. So you need to change that. And also, at a core level, the issue isn't your behavior. You're just triggering off this person's history, whatever it might be. It might be like, you know, saying you'll come home at 7 from work and then going to the pub and coming home at 10 and not checking in. You know, it's not not the worst thing it's not great but it's not the worst thing but if they've had some sort of abandonment or a, or a parent or an ex-partner that that was non-communicative then you may get this really strong emotional reaction and so yeah so both things can be true at the same time and i find that's a hard thing and maybe we can finish up with this question because i find it's a hard thing for people especially that have trauma to have that nuance it's it's black or it's white either he's wrong and i'm right or i'm wrong and he, you know that type of thing is that is that something that comes up when you're working you know this very black and white thinking and how do you how do you deal with that sure yeah it definitely does my mentor says if it's hysterical it's historical which is a nice thing to just keep in your back pocket I like that i haven't heard that <laughs> now if you're both being triggered that And I like to view it as you're both recreating something from the past, and then it's way more likely to go amiss (laughs) when that happens. Yeah, and that's what where... So if you're in fear or having a triggered or trauma response, you can't be curious. And so that's not the time to have that argument, and it's not the time to even really do your own work necessarily. But when you can enter that curiosity of like, well, why is this particular situation so hard for me and it's like well I don't want this to happen okay what happens if that happens it's like almost like the the toddler that just continues to ask why if you can keep following it to what feels like the satisfying answer that's what you're trying to protect and and sometimes that's really hard to do and that's where I found the somatic work just opens it up a bit more because if I just stay in my head about it I can come to dead ends, but if I pay attention to my feelings and one of the, you know, some of the earlier work is like, well, how old do you feel when you're having this feeling? Or what does this remind you of? Or when was the first time you felt this feeling? That what might be what's fueling such a big reaction. And that is where, well, what do I want from that situation? Or how do I move past that one? Which you often need help with, you know? I mean, I can say this pretty calmly right now as a therapist, but when it's my own stuff, it's, you know, I can't see what I can't see. I hope you're not suggesting us therapists have our own issues. I (laughs) would love to suggest that that weren't the case, but I don't think we'd be very good therapists if we had no issues. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a really good point. And I don't know if you've ever listened to our podcast. I I don't know that you have that I'm aware of, but our sign off is stay curious Hmm. 
So I, I agree with what you're saying. I've listened to some of the earlier ones. I don't know how long you've been saying that. I haven't been saying it since the beginning. Okay, so, then yeah. I haven't heard it. <laughs> so there you go. Well, that's a nice little bit of synchronicity. Yes. Well, let's leave it there. For those listening, I'm starting to make some really cool and fun connections with locals here in Minnesota. So there'll be lots more interesting interview episodes coming shortly, I hope. If you really liked what you heard from Addie and and some of the areas that she works in are of interest, we're going to leave her website and and other details in the show notes for you to reach out. You do you work online? How does that work? You have to work locally here in Minnesota or I'm licensed in Minnesota and Wisconsin, so I can see individuals who live in either state. Okay. So, yeah. So, if you're in one of those areas, yeah, feel free to reach out. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have Addy back. And thanks heaps for coming today, Addy. It's been a lot of fun and I'm sure people get a lot of value out of this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a really fun conversation. No worries. And until next time, everyone, stay curious. <laughs>